Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. It's a kind of a gray, cloudy, rainy day here in Oklahoma. The temperature's a lot warmer. It's not below. It's not below freezing. Last week was a nightmare. We finally have hot water back in our house, and actually, we've we've got all the lines open. We're actually we have cold water as well. So, uh, with me in the studio today is my friendly and infamous producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. I didn't realize I was infamous. <laughs> oh, you are. You are. You keep me going. You keep me working. So. I literally have two comments today, and uh, one I can talk to you about, one I can, well, I'll read both of them, and I was really excited to get these, and, and I wish I could show you what was sent to me, but uh, this is from uh, Fraser Murray, now he lives in Tasmania, Australia, and he says, Dear Mr. Leap, I have been really enjoying your detailed review of these early years in Churchill's life. Thank you for the explanations you give surrounding events mentioned in the text. I remember reading the excellent book by Mr. Gerald Flurry describing the watchman role that Churchill fulfilled and how official that was for that time. Touring through Kent in 2010, it was on our checklist to visit Chartwell, but sadly we ran short on time. If I find myself back that way again, it will be a priority to go there. And I have been able to go to Chartwell, and it is absolutely fascinating to, to be there and to see it. The fall, as far as I'm concerned, the fall is the, the prettiest time to be there. And uh, it's just if you really learn about him, he built the brick walls himself there. And it, it is really interesting. The ant landscaping is just unbelievable. There's a lake there. And uh, we really enjoyed it. It has been my delight to see my 12-year-old son take an interest in a documentary film, now a DVD we have of Churchill, made six decades ago. It says, thank you for reigniting a passion for myself to learn about this great man from history through your program. Such an excellent choice of books. And so I really appreciate you writing that, Mr. Murray. But he sent a second one. And I, this is even more interesting, and I wish that I could show everyone the, the photograph that I have here. But uh, he said, Dear Ms. Leap, as a regular listener to your current series on the early years of Winston Churchill, I was very excited to hear you mention the Victoria Cross awarded to Lord Fincastle in episode 324. Viscount Fincastle was the 8th Earl of Dunmore, a Scottish title, the current holder of the title lives in Tasmania, Australia. So now that's that's really interesting. It says uh, uh, Malcolm Murray is the twelfth Earl of Dunmore and Viscount Fincastle. The man who sent this is Fraser Murray. So I don't know, uh, Mr. Murray, if your your cousins are related or it really doesn't matter that much. 
But Malcolm Murs, he says, is the 12th Earl of Dunmore and Viscount Fincastle. Now, I did mention that the the Viscount got the Victoria Cross in one of the programs, so so I do have a picture of him here. He says, I have the honor of being his official bagpiper in Australia. Now, Mr. Murray, that's that's awesome. <laughs> you're not only handsome, you've got the right uniform on, you're right next to the Viscount, but you're his official bagpiper. I wish I had an official bagpiper. But uh, every time I hear bagpipes, I just tear up and start crying. So uh, maybe it's better if we don't have a bagpiper here for me. So he says, this photo of the Earl and me was taken in Tasmania a few years ago. And he says, kindest regards, Fraser Murray from Tasmania. So I wish I could show everybody the picture. But thank you so much for those comments. It's really encouraging. And uh, we're getting really almost down to the end of the book. And uh, I don't mind taking a long time with it because I feel like um, that I can explain a lot more and and uh, help people understand things. I know even in, in uh, college classes, I have the uh, English sophomore. We're starting Shakespeare this semester. But I like to read to them because it helps them to understand it. And sometimes you have to be able to phrase the sentence right and, and all that. And so... So uh, they do, I think, sometimes really appreciate the, the reading. Now, for today's program, I want to make some final comments on Chapter 11, and then I also want to start Chapter 12. And uh, uh, the Chapter 12 is titled The Tira Expedition, and I think you're going to find that that, that chapter is really qu quite interesting because Winston Churchill's life changes dramatically in the in the chapter 12 now i also want to tell you i am not sorry for ending the last program with a cliffhanger <laughs> in fact my best producer in the whole world dan was impressed and said i should do that more often and things with with the uh, cliffhangers so I think I have another cliffhanger for you today, <laughs> so we'll see here. So today, let's start on page 141. Trust me, there is more excitement to come. So this, I'm going to start at the very middle of the page, and this is where I ended last time. It says, I can only follow by fragments what happened after that. And so he's, he's talking now, they're in the Mammon Valley, they're in the middle of a battle, and this is the battle that he wanted and the other young guys wanted because they thought it would be very exciting. Well, before we're done today, you're going to see he changed his mind. <laughs> he said, uh, I could only follow by fragments what happened after that. One of the two Sikhs helped, helping to carry my wounded man was shot through the calf. He shouted with pain. His turban fell off and his long black hair streamed over his shoulders. A tragic gollywog. And of course, last time I explained to you, a gollywog is like a rag doll. So this poor guy got shot in the, in the uh, calf and was like a rag doll. He says, two of our men came from below and seized hold of our man. The new subaltern and I got the gollywog by the collar and dragging him along the ground. Luckily, it was all downhill. Apparently, we heard him so much on the sharp rocks that he asked to be let go alone. He hopped and crawled and staggered and stumbled, but made a good pace. Thus, he escaped. I looked around to my left, and now, now here's where it gets really sad. It says, the adjutant had been shot. Four of his soldiers were carrying him. 
He was a heavy man, and they all clutched at him. Out from the edge of the houses rushed half a dozen Pathan swordsmen. And so, so remember, the, and I've asked you in the past to, you know, take a look online, look what the Pathans look like. And, uh, you know, they, they're very cultured people. The, the women dress with beautiful clothing, I'm sure that they make. But they're tough guys, too. And they can be pretty scary when they have their swords. It says, The bearer of the poor adjutant let him fall and fled their approach. And so so if you have a group of Pathan swordsmen running at, at you um, and you don't have anything to defend yourself, you're going to drop the adjutant. <laughs> you know. It says, um, The leading tribesman rushed upon the prostrate figure and slashed it three or four times with his sword. So, so now that is just really gross. And I think last time I, I, uh, put it in the category of what Hamas has done to the Jews, uh, in, uh, in Gaza. And, uh, you know, there's still, um, people being held hostage. And you just wonder if they're even alive or not. He goes on to say, I forgot everything else at this moment except a desire to kill this man. And so, you know, he, he had a lot of respect for the ad, adjutant. And here this guy is just terribly, you know, massacred. The guy's already really in big trouble. Now he's dead. He said, I, he said uh, his only desire was to kill this man. He says, I wore my long cavalry sword well sharpened. After all, I had won the public school fencing medal. So, so now this is, this is a point where I want to chuckle just a little bit. Because he's really caught up in the moment so much that he's not really thinking is through. You know, he says, well, look, hey, I, I, I won the, the combat in public school fencing medal. So I can take on this Indian Pathan swordsman. <laughs> uh, he, what was he thinking? <laughs> he says, I resolved on personal combat. Uh, it's a French alarm blanche. And essentially that means with knives. We're going to fight with knives. He said, the savage saw me coming. I was not more than 20 yards away. He picked up a big stone and hurled it at me with his left hand and then awaited me, brandishing his, sh- his sword. So I think it's funny that the, the Pathan uh, tribesman <laughs> picks up a big rock and throws at him as he's coming with his sword, thinking that, hey, I won the, you know, something in my earlier years in high school and now I, I can really brandish this sword and kill this guy he says there were others waiting not far behind him he didn't see the other the other crew behind him and they all have swords too so he's he's going up a, a group he says uh, i changed my mind about the cold steel <laughs> that was smart so you can see that that winston churchill was really pretty smart he says i pulled out my revolver took as I thought the most careful aim and fired. No result. I fired again. No result. I fired again. Whether I hit him or not, I cannot tell. At any rate, he ran back two or three yards, plumped down behind a rock. And uh, so so you can imagine maybe he was hit and he was going back because he's bleeding. He says, the fusillade was continuous. I looked around. I was all alone with the enemy. So, so all of his buddies are still there with their swords. And so, so what do you think Winston Churchill does? He says, I was alone with the enemy. Not a friend was to be seen. I ran as fast as I could. There were bullets everywhere. 
I got to the first knoll. Hurrah, there were the Sikhs holding the lower one. They made vehement gestures in the few moments I was among them. And so the Sikhs, you know, are Indians, and they were there to protect him. And, uh, you know, it to me, it, it just shows the the character of, of Winston Churchill. I mean, he was he's thinking, I, I could kill this guy with his sword. <laughs> you know, and he he really remember now, a couple of programs back, he said they were looking for something exciting. Well, he got exciting. He had a whole group of Paith and tribemen running after him with their swords. So that was really exciting. And he goes on to say here, he says, there were, there were still about three-quarters of a mile of the spur to traverse before the plane was reached, and on each side of other spurs ran downwards. Along these rushed our pursuers. So, so not only were there this group of men with the, the one swordsman, there was a whole team of them. And they're here. They're trying to escape downhill, and they got. They're at both sides of them. Yeah, that would get your blood going. That would get your heart, heart going. He said there was still about three quarters of a mile on the spur to traverse before the plane was reached, and on each side of us, other spurs ran downwards. Along these rushed our pursuers, striving to cut us off and firing into both our flanks. I don't know how long we took to get to the bottom, but it was all done quite slowly and steadfastly. We carried two wounded officers, two wounded officers, excuse me, and about six wounded Sikhs with us. That took about 20 men. We left one officer and a dozen men dead and wounded to be cut to pieces on the spur. So that's really, uh, again, it's, it's really barbaric to desecrate I- even a dead body. He says, during this business, I armed myself with the martini and ammunition of a dead man and fired as carefully as possible. 30 or 40 shots at tribesmen on the left-hand ridge at distances from 80 to 120 yards. The difficulty about these occasions is that one is so out of breath and quivering with exertion, if not with excitement. However, I am sure I never fired without taking aim. And so, so remember now, he asked for something really exciting. <laughs> he got it. And uh, he said, we fetched up at the bottom of the spur, little better than a mob, but still with our wounded. There was the company reserve and the lieutenant colonel commanding the battalion and a few orderlies. The wounded were set down. All the survivors of the whole company were drawn up too deep, shoulder to shoulder, while the tribesmen, who must have numbered two or three hundred, gathered in a wide spreading half moon around our flanks. So, so this reminds me of like a Western <laughs> when all the Indians are attacking the wagon train. And so, so they're really, they're really under attack. He says, I saw the white officers were doing everything in their power to keep the Sikhs in close order. Although this formation presented a tremendous target, anything was better than being scattered. The tribesmen were all bunched together in clumps and they too seemed frenzied with excitement. So both sides, if they both wanted excitement, they both got it. And that can be really taxing on your body if, you know, if too, ma- too many exciting things are going on. Says the colonel said to me, the buffs are not more than a half mile away. Go and tell them to hurry or we shall all be wiped out. And so, so the buffs, remember, are the, I think it's the, the military from Kent. And, uh, they were, they were told to, they needed them to help them. He says, go and tell them to hurry or we shall all be wiped out. 
He said, I had half turned to go on this errand when a happy thought struck me. I saw in imagination the company overwhelmed and wiped out, and myself, an orderly officer to the divisional general, arriving the sole survivor, breathless at top speed, with tidings of disaster and appeals for help. And so he's really thinking this through. He said, I must have that order in writing, sir, <laughs> I said. So, so you know, think about Winston Churchill. I mean, uh, he trained as a soldier. He, he was, he, he's been working at this. He knows how important orders are. And he's thinking, what if I show up down there? And the, the guy doesn't believe me because I don't have an order. And, and so can you imagine the colonel? <laughs> Says he looked at him surprised, fumbled in his tunic, produced his pocketbook and began to write. But meanwhile, the captain had made his commands heard above the din and confusion. He had forced the company to cease their wild and ragged fulisade. I heard an order, volley, firing, ready, present, crash. At least a dozen tribesmen fell. Another volley, and they wavered. A third, and they began to withdraw up the hillside. The bugler began to sound the charge. Everyone shouted. The crisis was over. And here, praise be to God, were the leading files of the buffs. So the buffs showed up finally. And uh, so guess what happens next? What I'm going to tell you, would you think about this for yourself? He said, then we rejoiced and ate our lunch. <laughs> Can you imagine after being chased by Pathan tribes? Everybody's getting shot. They're either going to get knifed by the sword or their head cut off. And then as soon as everybody got done, they got down. Hey, it's time to eat for lunch. Just sit down and have a picnic. But as it turned out, we had a long way to go before night. <laughs> so, so they were able to eat their lunch. But it doesn't say anything about eating dinner by candlelight. So anyway, um, he goes on to say, this is page 143, by the way. It says, the buffs had now arrived and was obstinately decided to take the spur down which we had been driven in order to recover prestige and the body of the adjutant. I think that's very honorable. I don't know what kind of shape the adjutant's body was, but at least they wanted to, to uh, collect his remains. And that would be very important for the families. He said, this took us till five o'clock. That was a lot of, lot of work to do that. It says, meanwhile, the other company of the 13, 35th Sikhs, which had ascended the mountain on our right, had suffered even... Worst experiences, they eventually regained the plane, bearing along with them perhaps a dozen wounded and leaving several officers and about 15 soldiers to be devoured by the wolves. So so if, if you have the book, you can get the map of the Mammon Valley and you can see where all this is taking place. But, but there, were, there was war on more than one front. There were battles on more than one front. And, you know, soldiers were being killed. And I'm assuming... That what he's really saying there is that that they they couldn't bring all the wounded or the dead back, and and that that there must have been a lot of wolves in that mountain pass. Says so the shadows of evening had already fallen upon the valley, and all the detachments so improvidently dispersed in the morning turned their steps towards the camp, gradually enveloped by a thunderstorm and by the night, and closely followed by savage and exulting foes. I marched home with the buffs and with the much-mauled 35th Sikhs. It was dark when we entered the entrenchments which now surrounded the camp. 
All the other parties had already gone home after unsatisfactory, although serious, fighting. But where was the general? And where was his staff? And where was the mule battery? So, so you can you imagine? Here you are in a mountainous area. Um, you know, you're you're surrounded by uh, vicious natives and probably uh, horrible animals, and they they can't find the general. They can't find him. It says the perimeter of the camp was strongly guarded, and we got ourselves some food amid the usual drizzle of sniping. Two hours passed. So in other words, they're, they're trying to get food, but there's still a lot of the, the enemy is, you know, in the mountain and they're shooting at them, you know, as they're trying to get their dinners. But he goes on to say, where was the general? We now knew that he had with him, besides the battery, a half company of sappers and miners. Now, again, those are, those are military terms. And a sapper is a soldier responsible for the, uh, I wrote this on the side of my book, they're responsible for the task such as building and repairing roads and bridges. And then you have the miners, and essentially uh, you could think of coal mining, but the miners, these soldiers, what they did is they dug big ditches underneath, let's say, the living area of the, the enemy. And then they would... They would load it with explosives, and then if it got into a war, they just blew it up, and they could have taken out a whole group of people. And so, so they're the ones that set the dynamite to uh, to uh, help them win win battles. So you had the sappers that repaired everything, and then you had the miners that blew it all up. <laughs> so, so I guess that's the way it is in war. I've never had to go to war. My uh, next two brothers oldest than me uh, one went in the air force one went into the army and uh i was planning to go into the navy and then they uh well they didn't call us up anymore so i didn't go anywhere but to college so suddenly from the valley there resounded the boom of a gun calculated to be about three miles away it was followed at short intervals by perhaps 20 more reports than silence what could be happening Against what targets was the general firing his artillery in the blackness of night? So, so now they know that the general is okay. He's got his own military group with him. He's got a lot of ammunition with him. And so he's still fighting the enemy, even in the dark. It was followed at short intervals by perhaps 20 more reports than silence. What could be happening? Against what targets was the general firing his artillery in the blackness of night? Evidently, he must be fighting at the very closest quarters. They must be all mixed up together, or were these guns firing signals for help? And so, so you can imagine that all the officers that are there now in their camp, they're wondering what's going on. Does he, does he need help? Does the general need help? They could hear where he is. And, you know, they, they weren't sure what to do. And what Winston says here, I think is very interesting. He says, the senior officers consulted together. And he said, as so often happens when things go wrong, formalities were discarded. And I found myself taking part in the discussion. Now, I'm not surprised that he was in the discussion. Because even if they didn't invite him, he would have wanted to be in the discussion. And, uh, uh, you know, so, but, but I do think that was part of his education as well. 
it was decided that no troops could leave the camp in the night. To send a rescue force to blunder on foot amid the innumerable pitfalls and obstacles of the valley in pitch darkness would be to cause further disaster, and also to weaken the camp fatally if it were to be attacked, as well it might be. Now remember, the camp is still surrounded by enemies. So so if they send everybody out to help the general, then who's going to help the people that are behind? It says the general and the battery must fight it out wherever they were till daylight. And so so and and, and it's interesting that you know the the let's say those men that are the leaders underneath the general decided we're not going to go help the general <laughs> because it's too dangerous. It's dangerous for him. It's dangerous for us. And he says, again, the guns in the valley fired, so they had not been scuppered yet. And if you look at that word scuppered, it just means they didn't fail. So they were okay. They knew they were okay. And he said, I saw for the first time, now listen to this. This this is a really different, and I think it just shows the, well, the wisdom and the understanding that, that Winston Churchill really did have and, uh, you can see where these these kind of events in his young life really did help him prepare for World War One and World War Two. I mean, he was learning at a high rate here. He said, but he goes on to say here, I think is is a great it's great writing. It's a great admission. He says, I saw for the first time the anxieties, stresses, and perplexities of war. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not a party. It's not a picnic. He said, it was not apparently all a gay adventure. We were already in jeopardy and anything might happen. It was decided that the squadron of Bengal Lancers, supported by a column of inf- infantry, should set out to relieve the general when the first light of dawn, with the first light of dawn. It was now past midnight and I slept soundly, booted and spurred for a few hours. So, so he was able to sleep. And, uh, I think that's another another aspect to to uh, let's say the genius of Winston Churchill. You know, when it's time to sleep, you sleep. You forget what the you know. You, you don't just meditate on it all night long. And uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think even with the terrible times we're living in right now, and of course we're in the middle of the, the you know the Caucasus and. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people out there, that if you're reading The Trumpet and you're reading our publications, you know that we believe President Trump is coming back and it looks like everything is falling into place for him to come back. But, you know, at night, we all need to, to be have peace of mind and realize, you know, don't worry about it all night. Keep your health. And, uh, you know, it, t- to be honest, I don't want to sound too religious, but Hey, if we all look to God for protection, why not sleep? He's going to take care of us. I know with with uh, you know the crazy weather here, we had no hot water for you know four or five days. Uh, in fact, even the cold water wouldn't run, and we didn't suffer. <laughs> we didn't die. Of course, you know it's nice to have the college here because I could run over at five thirty in the morning and take a hot shower, you know, in the field house and. Uh, I thought for sure I'd be there without any students. And one a student popped in on me one time, and I went, "Whoa! What are you doing here so early?" And he said, "Oh, our our shower isn't working that well down at the dorm." And I thought, "Oh, I never thought about that." Anyway, 
um, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a way that you can deal with problems in a sane way and not, not lose your sleep. Anyway, that's, that's a point that I'm making. All right. Well, guess what? <laughs> that's all the time we have for today's program. Our next program, we will finish chapter 11 and hopefully we'll start chapter 12. You can buy my early life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may, you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.